The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. If you have your Bible and hope you do, turn to Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Then Jezebel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest, the, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set him aside, or set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lap putting them their hands to the mouth was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent them all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but remained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given into you your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sands that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And the comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to his camp of Israel, and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and put trumpets into the hands of all of them, and empty jars with torches inside the jars. 
And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle march when they were just set to watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hand the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against the comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bathsheba toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. This is the word of the Lord. If you haven't already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. As we continue the fourth major judge cycle in this book, which features our judge Gideon, a man that last week we saw is filled with fear, even though when, when we first meet him, God calls him a mighty man of valor. And God calls him a mighty man of valor because that is who God would empower him to be. Last week, we began to see how that empowerment would happen, namely by God revealing to Gideon his presence and his power. I'm with you, Gideon, and I'm for you. We saw, like in the beginning, Gideon envisioned Yahweh in the same way he envisioned any other god that his family served, be it Baal, be it Asherah, whatever. In, in Gideon's world, all gods were the same. You, you paid the god through worship, and if you did it right, then you got blessing in return. The god's power and presence would show up in your life as blessing. But if that blessing didn't come, it meant you hadn't paid the right worship, and you'd been forsaken. Well, when we met Gideon, he and all of Israel with him were not living in a time of blessing. They're living in a time of oppression that we still see in our chapter today. Oppression from the Midianites and the Amalekites. And so in Gideon's world, I'm living in oppression, not blessing. That must mean that the gods have forsaken me. And for Gideon, that included Yahweh. But we saw in chapter six, Yahweh come to Gideon right in the midst of his fear-filled oppression. He came to him. Do you remember where Gideon was? He was threshing out wheat, hiding in a wine press. God came to him right there in the moment of his fear. And he gave him a sign, a sign at a rock that basically said, Gideon, I am with you. My presence is with you and my power is for you. He came to Gideon to, again later in the night and called him to tear down his family's idolatrous altars, showing Gideon again, my presence is with you. My power is for you. He came to Gideon again at the end of the chapter with the sign of the fleece, once again showing him, my presence is with you. My power is for you. All of this, everything we saw last week was aimed at revealing how Yahweh is different than any other God Gideon had ever known. For Yahweh 
is a God who's with us, present and powerful, precisely when we feel forsaken. Like in Gideon's world, to be, to feel forsaken is evidence that that's exactly what the gods have done. But Yahweh reveals to Gideon, I'm a God who comes to you in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your suffering. Gideon, at the moment at which things seem darkness, don't look at that darkness as an indicator that I have abandoned you. No, that's precisely the time when Yahweh draws near. That's precisely the time when he works his power for us. And he works that power in the most unexpected of ways. His presence is with us even when it doesn't seem like it. That's the truth we hammered home last week. And his power comes in the most unexpected of ways. His power is for us even when it doesn't seem like it. That's the truth we will see this morning. And it's the truth we need to see. Because perhaps, like perhaps after last week you were left thinking, okay, Jonathan, it's been hammered home. The Lord is with us, even in the midst of the darkness. Great, but I still find myself afraid. Because it's still dark all around me. I don't have any Amalekites or Midianites, but I got plenty of things that feel like enemies coming at me. And I don't see, Jonathan, I don't see how God's power could possibly be working for me. In fact, I don't feel his power at all. I feel pretty weak. And if I'm honest, to trust in him feels pretty foolish. Jonathan, the Lord may be with me, but if I'm honest, amidst the dark, I still feel afraid. Shades, if that's you, and goodness knows it's me. I, I, I feel this all the time. If, that's, if, if you're afraid amidst the darkness of this world and whatever you're facing, be it sin, be it suffering, be it just the, the, the rising tide of secular culture. A couple of weeks ago, Grant preached to us, and, and in the midst of that sermon, he got really vulnerable. He talked about how, he said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of raising my kids, their teen years especially, in the midst of the rising tide of secular culture that has narratives that seem on the surface so wise and make the gospel seem so foolish. That has a pool that feels so powerful and makes the gospel feel so weak. I feel that fear. Shades, if you're afraid in the midst of the dark, then God has gospel good news for you this morning in Judges 7. Like it may feel foolish to trust him, but Judges 7 shows us that such foolishness is actually wise. It may feel, you may feel weak, but Judges 7 shows us that God's power is made perfect precisely in weakness. You may feel afraid, but Judges 7 helps us see how the Lord is not just present with us, but his power is for us, even when, especially when, it doesn't seem like it. Let's dive in together and see 
this gospel good news. Judges chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. So where we are is we're coming right off of the hills of the sign of the fleece. That's how chapter 6 ended. You remember that? Gideon laying out the fleece and being like, God, if you're really with me and if you're really for me, then make the fleece wet and the dry ground. And then he reverses it and make the fleece dry and the ground wet and all that. And God condescends and does all of that, assuring Gideon, I am present with you and my power is for you. And so Gideon's right. He's like, all right, let's go. And he gathers troops, 32,000 strong. And right here we see him strategically camp beside a spring, you know, so his troops will be like refreshed when they head into battle, which we know that battle's got to be coming soon because the enemy is camped not far away. They are just across the valley. I mean, when we read this opening verse, don't we expect the very next thing we read to be about God's powerful victory? It's not what we get at all. As a matter of fact, we take two very big detours before we ever get to the battle. And here's the deal. These detours, these details, this is where everything we need to see lies. It's it's in these detours. In these detours is the doctrine our heads need to learn. In these detours is the reality that our eyes need to see. In these detours is the truth that our heart needs to believe. See the first detour with me in verse two. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me. Okay. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim to the ears of the people, saying, Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. This is detour number one, which I'd sum up like this. If you're afraid, go home. Detour number one, if you are afraid, go home. What in the world kind of military strategy is that? Like you're not just decreasing your forces right here. You're discouraging all of those that remain. Can't you just picture the 10,000 like? I mean, this has got to be the most literal meaning of discouraging ever, to discourage, to like have courage drained out of you. This looks so foolish. And God's not done. Verse four. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Just see Gideon like, really? Take them down to the water, that, that spring of Harad. Take them down to the water and I will test, refine, sift. I'll sift them for you there. Anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. All right. 
We're going to get rid of some more soldiers. And God does it in the strangest way. So he takes them down to the spring of Harad, and he gets them to drink. And he uses this to divide the soldiers into two groups. Group number one are those who use their hand to, like, scoop up the water to their mouth and drink. 300 do that. In group number two are those who get down on their knees to drink directly from the stream. 9,000 700 do that. Now, we all know what group Gideon has to be hoping God will choose to go. But I'm willing to bet that in his gut, he knew what we already know. God's picking the 300 and sending the rest home. This is the real battle of the 300. Most people you hear about the Battle of 300, everybody thinks Thermopylae, King Leonidas of the Spartans and all that. Y'all familiar with this? There's a really like horribly graphic movie that makes every man in his 40s feel like he's supposed to have six-pack abs about this battle. It's incredibly portrayed falsely. It was not 300 Spartans. There were 300 Spartans there. There were other soldiers there. They had well over 1,000 troops. That's beside the point. This is the story of the real 300. That's what I'm saying. And here's the deal. Like, I have heard so many theories as to why God chooses these 300 soldiers. The most popular being the one I heard first in Sunday school, and that's that these 300 soldiers displayed superior military instincts by, like, drawing up the water to their mouths. They could remain alert on the lookout for the enemy. There's just one problem. Text doesn't say that. In fact, that point seems to go in the opposite direction of the point the text is making. What's the point it's making? None of what God is doing is about Israel's wisdom or Israel's strength. It's all about his. I think, I think personally that he takes them down to the spring specifically because camping near it was part of Gideon's strategy. And so it's there that God reveals his foolish strategy that will shame worldly wisdom. I think God takes them down to the spring to show them this is not about your strength. He takes them down there to make them weak. Harad, the name of this spring, that, that name is derived from the Hebrew word for trembling. Literally, it's named the spring of trembling. And that's what Yahweh makes them do tremble as he reduces their strength by over 99% from 32,000 to 300. This looks so weak, which is precisely what's necessary to reveal God's strength. Is that not what God himself said the point was all the way back in verse two? Look at it again. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. God wants them to know it's not your hand, it's mine. It's not your strength, it's mine. It's not about your wisdom, it's not about your power. It's about mine, which I reveal precisely through what looks foolish to you and what looks weak to you. Shades, we are seeing the truth that we first saw back through our second judge, Ehud. You remember him, our left-handed savior? 
that God displays his wisdom and his power through what looks foolish and weak. We're seeing that truth again on repeat. It's just being taken deeper. It's being made just as explicit as the Apostle Paul makes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 25, where he says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I don't care how wise the world's way looks, how powerful it looks, it will prove itself in the end to be foolish and weak. And here's the irony. The very wisdom and power the world wants so badly is found in the very last place they would expect it. It's found in the gospel, which looks foolish and weak to them. The gospel, the cross of Christ. Foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews, the apostle Paul says. But there in the cross is where true wisdom, God's wisdom and true power, God's power is ultimately put on display. The foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Don't believe it? Neither did Gideon. That's why he and we need detour number two, verse nine. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid, you know I'm with you. But if it doesn't look like my power is for you, you're still afraid. If you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they, the Midianites, say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So then Gideon went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Here we get detour number two, which I would label, if you are afraid, come close. Detour one, if you're afraid, go home. Detour two, if you're afraid, come close. Like, do, do you see the irony here? God says, Gideon, if you're afraid to go down, go down. Like, well, what, what in the world kind of military strategy is this, if you're afraid of the enemy, then let's go get closer to the enemy. Like this, once again, looks foolish. This is the kind of thing that would truly make you feel the depths of your weakness. Yeah, go get close to this massive army. See how strong they are. Like, like this looks foolish and it looks like weakness, but God says this is the very thing that will strengthen Gideon's hand. And God knows that Gideon's hand needs strengthening. He knows that all of our hands in the midst of the darkness of this world need strengthening. As, as Psalm 103 and verse 14 says, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we need strengthening in our faith and in his gentleness, his kindness, his love. Gideon doesn't go looking for any of this. 
This is God's gentleness, his kindness, his love. And his gentleness, kindness, and love change. He does strengthen us. God still extends to you and me the exact same invitation that he is extending to Gideon right here. Namely, if you're afraid, come close. Come close and see. See the reality. I'm not just present with you. No, see, my power is for. God knows we need strengthening. And so he does the most loving but seemingly strangest thing. He invites us to come close to that which looks foolish and weak to see if that's not the very place we find strength. Gideon, if you're afraid, come close. And Gideon does. He takes Pura which is likely his like uh, attendant or armor bearer, basically his right-hand man. So here comes the general and his right-hand man. Here comes the general. Hamilton, anyone? No? Okay. All right. So anyway, here they come down to the camp of the Midianites and check out what they see. Look at verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore is in abundance. Oh, great. I feel strengthened already. Thanks, God. Good thing I sent those 29,000 troops home. Won't be needing them against this locust swarm of an army. You ever seen a locust swarm, Shades? Like, YouTube it. This afternoon, homework for everybody. Go YouTube, Locust Swarm. It, it is one of the most insane things you will ever see. And this is what Gideon beholds, only it's not locusts, it's an army. Like with each step he's taking towards this destination, Gideon's got to be feeling more and more foolish. With each step, he's got to be feeling more and more the depth of his Weakness. This, this sight in front of him cannot possibly strengthen him. It's got to be the very thing that's demoralizing him. Like, what is God doing? Keep reading. Keep reading and see how the foolishness of God is wiser than our wisdom, how the weakness of God is stronger than our strength, how the gospel reverses everything, flips it on its head. Verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man, a Midianite soldier, was telling a dream to his comrade. Okay, so I looked, and this is the only place in the ESV that they use the English word comrade to translate what I didn't actually look at the Hebrew right here, so I'm not 100% sure what's going on. I guess the translators decide, I don't know. Makes Midian sound like communist or something, but we'll go with it. It's called great, you know? So he's telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed a dream of time. Play Miserable, anyone? No musical fans this morning. Okay, all right. Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley or like a loaf, like a loaf of bread, tumbled into the camp of Midian came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down. Flipped it on its head so that the tent lay flat. I don't know why it's strangely comforting to know that even 3,000 years ago, people had crazy dreams. 
But his friend doesn't seem to think it's crazy. His, his comrade uh, thinks that it's a prophetic dream. Look at verse 14. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. I, how he comes up with this interpretation, I I don't think you can explain this one away practically. You can try. Like, maybe the Midianites had heard about this double-named general, Gideon, which means hewer or destroyer. Jerubel, he who contends with Bel. So maybe they'd heard and gotten afraid of this destroyer who contends with the, the gods. I mean, we know this is the man who was scared to thresh out his wheat in the open, so he did it in a wine press. But he's gone from threshing out wheat to apparently becoming a whole loaf, a nightmarish loaf on a roll set to conquer Midian. This dream is flipping all of our expectations, turning them all on their head just like the tent in the dream. I don't know how you interpret this dream any other way than supernaturally. I mean, what we are seeing clearly is God in his sovereignty giving dreams and interpretations, and he does it for Gideon. Shades, this is vital. This is, this is, this is the crux of everything we're talking about this morning. Shades, see the point of this detour with me. This, this, this is the doctrine that our heads need to learn, the reality our eyes need to see, the truth that our hearts need to believe. What? What am I talking about? God is using the enemy, the very thing that has made Gideon feel weak. He's using that to make Gideon strong. Does this look foolish now? are wiser than anything that we could ever conceive. God, here's the whole point of this detour. God makes the very thing that Gideon fears serve his faith. You see that clearly. Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped, bowed down, prostrate, on the ground. He Worship, this is the only place in the entire book of Judges where this Hebrew word for worship is used to describe the response of an Israelite to Yahweh. Like I've been telling you that all throughout this book of Judges, we are on a downward spiral, a downward trajectory, but this kind of feels like the interruption of a high point right here. Gideon's faith really has been strengthened. He is doing the thing we sing about. He is raising a hallelujah in the presence of his enemies. Keep reading. It says, and he returned to the camp of Israel, and he said, arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Gideon believes. He believes not, not just that the Lord is present with him, but that his power is for him. And he believes that because of the enemy. Shades, do you, do you see? Do you see the gospel good news of Judges 7? If you are afraid, God works in such a way to take the very thing you fear and make it serve your faith. 
Come, come close. Come in close. Come with me and see it. What do you fear? What do you, what do you fear? Do you fear your sin? Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel takes the depth of your sin and makes it the very place you come to know the depths of grace. The very thing you fear and flips it to serve your faith. What do you, what do you fear? Suffering? Sickness? A loss of health? Unemployment? Bankruptcy? Persecution, opposition from a secular culture, Romans 8.35 declares that none of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, all of those things make us depend more on Christ. When we experience those things, we end up experiencing more of him. It's like, here's the way I try and explain it to my kids. It's like the game of Jenga. I stepped on a Jenga block last night in our kitchen, so this is fresh on my brain. You ever played this game? It's a little stack of blocks and you go around the circle. Everybody's supposed to take out a block, move it to the top, yada, yada, yada. And what you realize is this tower of blocks can stand a heck of a lot taller on a heck of a lot less than you thought it could. This is what suffering does in our life. My life can be rock solid and I can stand here and claim that Jesus Christ is enough for me all I want. But I don't really know that until suffering takes that block of health. And that block of financial security. And that block of popularity. And it leaves me with nothing to stand on but Jesus. And as I experience these sufferings, I experience more of the reality that Christ really is enough. The very things I fear are made to serve my faith. It's it's precisely, we sing about this all the time, it's precisely when all around my soul gives way that he then, then is all my hope instead. Shades, I discover that I stand on a solid rock when all other ground becomes sinking sand. The very things I fear are made to serve my faith. What do you fear? Sin, suffering, Death itself, shades, it too has been conquered by my king and made to serve me. It has lost its sting and is nothing more than a taxi for me to get me into the presence of Jesus. This is why, this is why Romans 8, 37, I'm going to Romans 8 a lot, just memorize it and live by it. It's the best chapter in the Bible. This is why Romans 8, 37 calls us more than conquerors through Christ. Not just conquerors, more than conquerors. It's because in all these things, in suffering, in sickness, in persecution, in death itself, we not only conquer, we get more of Jesus. We don't just conquer that which comes against us. It's made to serve us. Therefore, we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us, because I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of it can only serve to help me know him more. Shades, shades. The gospel reverses everything. 
flips it on its head like that Midianite tent in that dream. Even making that which would cause us to fear. Making that serve our faith. Come in close and see it. If you are afraid, come in close to the cross and see it. See God take the greatest evil, the greatest darkness, the greatest seeming victory of the enemy. See him take it and make it serve the greatest good. Shine forth the greatest glory and display the greatest love. Come, come close and see. See what looks like foolishness is actually the greatest wisdom. See, see what looks like weakness is actually the greatest strength. See what seems like defeat is actually victory. God is present with us and his power is for us. Do, do you believe it here? If you believe it here, you can believe it anywhere. I believe it shades in the midst of my depression. I've shared with you a lot about depression being one of the largest struggles that I've ever experienced. It's, it is a great weakness for me. And through it, God has taught me more about his strength as he has sustained, given more grace, surrounded me with love and affection from you and brothers and sisters unlike anything that I have ever known. And, and not just that, God has not just used that weakness as a means of displaying his strength to me. He's used it as a means of connecting me with other people in the midst of their suffering so that I get to testify to his grace. I get to say I, I, to you right now, today, I get to say I've seen God's presence with me and I've seen his power for me in the very place it did not seem like he was present or powerful. In the very place in my life where I was most afraid, I've seen God come close and use it to serve my faith and the faith of others. Shades, that's what he does. That's what he's done for me. That's what we see him do in scripture again and again and again and again. That's, that's what he does with Joseph being sold into slavery in Genesis and falsely accused and imprisoned. Does he not flip that on its head? Make that which would cause fear serve our faith? This is what he does with Job when Job loses everything. This is what he did with Ehud's left-handedness. This is what he does with Ruth and Naomi being widowed. It's what he does with Hannah's infertility struggles. It's what he did with the widow of Zarephath's poverty. It's what he did with Naaman's leprosy. It's what he did with Esther's people being condemned to death. It's what he did with Lazarus's literal death. It's what he did with Peter's denials. It's what he did with Stephen's martyrdom. It's what he has done with his own empty tomb. He takes the very things that cause fear and makes them serve our faith and the faith of others. That's what he's doing with Gideon in Judges 7. The, the very enemy that caused Gideon fear, God has made them serve his faith. And now Gideon stokes the faith of others. He takes, he takes his 300 men. They surround the Midianite camp in the middle of the night. It's the, it's the middle watch. There were three watches, one from Eight, first watches, eight to midnight, and second watches, midnight to four, and third watches, four to eight. So all of our breakfast places around here should be called third watch. Um, that's beside the point. So he comes at midnight. This 
middle watch, the darkest part of the night. They come armed with trumpets, ram's horns to blow, and torches covered up with jars. And on Gideon's signal, they break jars. They let their torches shine. Midian looks surrounded, blow their horns, and they shout. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Which is ironic. Because none of them are armed. Because God doesn't need their swords. He's sovereign over every sword. Verse 21. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army, the Midianite army, they ran. They cried out and fled When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's, every Midianite man's, he set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. A sword for the Lord. Even the enemy's swords belong to him. Even their swings are under his sovereignty, and he uses Midian's own swords to defeat Midian. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade, and this locust-like army flees, complete and total victory. That's what we're meant to see. If you keep reading verses 24 and 25, they emphasize the fact that this was complete, total victory. How? Well, other Israelites joined the fight and were specifically told that they chased down two Midianite princes. They kill them both, one at a rock, one at a wine press. Curious. At the beginning of Gideon's story, we found him hiding in a wine press out of fear. And when the angel of the Lord visited him, he gave him a sign to try to turn his fear to faith, and he gave him that sign at a rock. Now, at the end of this story, we see fear has been conquered. God's given the promised victory in the very places that fear once reigned. A wine press and a rock. Total and complete victory. Everything flipped on its head. Shades, the same thing. Total and complete victory, that same thing is promised to you and to me. The very places of our lives that feel most like defeat. Whatever your wine press, whatever your rock, whatever the place of fear that feels most like defeat, those places will be turned into the trophies of God's victory. I know it doesn't feel like that right now, but ultimately, that's that's what all the victories of deliverance in the book of Judges point us to. They point us to the fact that there will be ultimate victory that God will All these victories that we see, all the deliverances we see in the book of Judges, all of them are temporary. We've seen that already, and we're going to see it again. The people of Israel, they're going to be oppressed again. And even now, all the victories that we experience in our lives, in the present, victories over sickness, sorrow, suffering, they are temporary victories, as we all know, that sorrow and suffering will invade our lives again and again. 
They are temporary victories in judges and in our lives now that all point forward. They're all small foretastes of what's coming. Ultimate, complete victory. When one day the perfect Gideon comes, God himself, Jesus Christ, will come again to complete his defeat of evil and bring about ultimate deliverance by making all things new. And shades, on that day, you will see, you will know, you will see, you will believe that the very places in our lives that have felt most like defeat, those are the trophies of God's victory. Sickness, gone. Suffering swallowed up, death itself a distant memory, and we will stand as more, more than conquerors with everything we ever feared now serving our faith as trophies of God's grace. Shades, this is the gospel in Judges 7. And if you are afraid, then come in close and see it. See God take what looks foolish and make it wise. See him take what looks weak and make it strong. See him take what looks like defeat and make it victory. See that he is present with you and his power is for you, even and especially when it doesn't seem like it. If you're afraid, come in.